Hey family, this is Jonathan Soul. Stand by, let me power up this engine right quick. See, what you gotta understand is space is black. It's black, it's vast, and it's full of life. Here on JonathanSoul.com, what we do is we explore blackness in the form of comics, sci-fi, mystery thrillers, science fiction and fantasy, basically. I interview writers, illustrators, publishers, actors, filmmakers from the African, African-American, the global black community and see what kinds of dimensions, worlds, civilizations they're building. So put your seatbelt on, engage your gravity boots, make sure there's an airtight seal on your chute. And let's ride in three, in two, in one. Uh, I have the opportunity to bring before you a philosopher, somebody who has peeped beyond the veil and brought back not only stone tablets, but some e-books as well. I'm talking about somebody who's communicated with the force inside the burning bush. And family, not only does he have books of science fiction to share, but also uh, divine lines of poetry. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Gerald Coleman. How you doing, sir? Hey, man, I'm, I'm trying to look around to see who is this, this brother is introducing to make sure that I'm in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I interview Good legends evening, on this program, brother. Legends before y'all knew it. I hear you. I hear you. Well, look, man, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. And uh I'm looking forward to the convo, man. Yeah, so looking let's 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 continue what we were talking about. We're gonna get into the, the novel series that you have um out on Amazon uh, right now. Um, the first one, I, th- I think I, I have it on my little phone here. Um, uh, when Night Falls, uh, uh, the first book of the Three Gifts uh, series, right? Mm-hmm. So it's going to be three, three, and you got two books out. You got one called When the Night Falls, a uh, book one of the Three Gifts, and then the second one, of course, is a, bla- a Plague of Shadows, book two. And uh, correct the the second, the third book is coming out next year, early next year, end of this year. What happened? Yeah, well, look. Let me let me correct one thing first because I, I you know I get this all the time, but uh, it's probably going to be um, I, I I hate to say uh, put place a number on it, but uh, I know that people are are often uh, interested, but it's probably going to be what's called a pentology, which is uh, five books in wow. the series. Wow. Okay. And. Uh, just, just kind of given where I know the story needs to go. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, but yes, definitely. The, the I'm looking at at some point uh, around next summer for book three to uh, to be finished. Okay, next summer and out and available. Gotcha. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's 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 uh, it's something yeah in the works, man. Definitely. Beautiful, beautiful. Now you know you're you're a writer, you're a poet, and and one thing you said off mic, which was profound, was that you need a, a community, a collective of uh, of writers, um, you know, to build with. And so you referred me to 
this Facebook uh, public group called the State of Black Science Fiction. Can you tell me something about it? Yeah, it was uh, a group uh, uh, on, you can find them on Facebook or find us on Facebook, but uh, the kind of uh, inception of it was uh, recognizing a kind of a, a dearth in uh, the availability of a community where um, African Americans in particular, but people of color in general, could go and find uh, a community that was interested in the genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the kind of, I think, myths of the genre among kind of the broader publishing community was always that uh, African Americans in specific and people of color in general weren't interested in science fiction and fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was never my experience. I, I, you know, I knew all kinds of people of color and particularly black folk who were interested in the genre. I began reading it as a kid very early on. And so um, brother, these brothers, Milton Davis was one, uh, Balagon O.J. Tade is another, uh, who, who have had the same kind of uh, experience. And there was no a viable community out there for uh, people who were interested in the genre to be a part of. And so they started it themselves, which is just kind of something that you have to do. If you see something, if you see a, a, a void out there, something uh, interested in oftentimes what we do is sit around and well what some people do is sit around and lament that it's not there or complain and fuss about it. it but what you have to do is you have to if it's not there you have to create it right no one else is going to do it for you and mm-hmm. so um these brothers created this community and it's been growing exponentially and uh, it's a place where you can go and find the you know the latest hottest stuff that folks are writing and, and producing and creating, uh, not just in terms of novels, but, you know, whatever you're looking for. There are filmmakers, there are artists, there are all kinds of creators uh, involved in the community. And uh, I think that's, that's vitally important. Now, has this group yourself has, has this group ever had like a convention, a con, a gathering? Yeah, exactly. Uh, in 2016, um, we had our first convention, kind of like a Comic-Con uh, kind of experience. It was called State of Black Science Fiction Con, and uh, it took place here in Atlanta. And uh, it, was a, it was a rousing success. I mean, it was one of the, I've been to a number of, of conventions. I've been on panels, uh, done the whole thing, but it was one of the most comfortable experiences i've had because it felt like you were at, at home at a at a family reunion wow uh, it was it was black folk there were black folks everywhere and all kinds of vendors and panels where we talked about what we thought we, what we felt was important to discuss mm-hmm. uh in the genre of science fiction and fantasy it was a big deal uh, we're doing it again um this summer at georgia tech in the month of june it's going to be called black plastic kind and okay. um, yeah, it's going to be a blast. Wow! So for people who want to find out more information, they just hop on Facebook and just uh, search for the State of Black Science Fiction. Science fiction, two Correct. words. Okay. Correct. All right. All right. And, and uh, I think they're going to. I think the brothers are going to have a website specifically dedicated to the convention up uh, sometime in the coming uh, few weeks. Fantastic. Uh, but yes, certainly if they go on Facebook and look up State of Black Science Fiction, uh, they'll find all the information they need. Fantastic. Now, let's get back to your property. So 
you started out as a novelist? I, you know, my in terms of writing, my yeah. initial um, experience was as a poet. You know, I started writing poetry in high school. Okay. I wrote all through college. What What, what was the name? Uh, was what, what was the name, uh, Gerald? Uh, well, in college, uh, <laughs> you say you started writing poetry in high school. I figured they was, uh, you know, uh, Rebecca or, uh, you know, oh, oh, yeah. Toya, yeah. Yeah. Renee yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Why, why was her name? Okay. That was one of them. You know, you already know. Uh, yeah. If a brother's writing poetry, right, exactly. school, there's, there's a woman in there somewhere involved. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely, man. And so by the time I got to college, though, when I went to the University of Kentucky as a freshman, um, and found, I actually found some other uh, some other folk who were writing poetry. And, it, and, and incidentally, that was also... Uh, the time when I first read uh, at 18, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Okay. And that led me to W.E.B. Du Bois, which led me to Frederick Douglass, which mm. led me to Shake Out to Joke, which led me to wow. uh, uh, Martin Bernal, and on and on and on. And so the, the kind of the impetus for writing changed from now, what I was doing in high school. Now, Gerald to something a bit more important. Those those books that you mentioned, I mean, that's a journey that a lot of us took. I mean, right. Did you like was there a different Gerald that went that came out the other end of that journey? You follow me? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Okay. Definitely. Okay. I mean, you couldn't I don't think you can at 18 as a young black cat, read the autobiography of Malcolm X mm-hmm. and come out the same person on the other end of that. Yeah. Uh, just, I mean, even even before you got to all of those other writers and thinkers, just that, just the experience of that book mm-hmm. and and the journey that um, Haley takes you on through through Malcolm's own words. That journey is just is, is just impactful. It, I, I don't see how you can read that and and still be the same person, particularly if you are a person of African descent. I just, I don't know how you could do it. But yeah. uh, but you're right. I, I I know I'm not the only one who made that journey. But for me, that was the impetus of it. And at 18, and so once I read that, I was hungry for what other black thinkers were out there and what else was available. And uh, and so I began kind of reading all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, it, during it, this period of time... impacted my poetry. Uh, there you go. That's a, Go ahead, keep going. That's just where I was going to go. Go ahead. No, I, that, I was just saying that that's, that's, that was the arc that kind of moved my poetry from what it was in high school to mm-hmm. what it eventually became. You know, with all of those, you know, once you start reading The Souls of Black Folk yeah. and Black Athena and uh, the African origin of civilization, all that mm-hmm. other stuff, yeah, uh, the philosophy of Elaine Locke. You know, uh, you you can't help but uh, but have that transform your thinking. And so my poetry very quickly moved from you know writing love poems to girls in high school to writing about my experience as a young black man and and our experience as as uh, as black folk in 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 this country. And so that that's kind of that was the kind of the kind of transformative linchpin of of what 
what my poetry became. Now, you went to uh, University of Kentucky. Is that, <clears throat> I don't think that's the HBCU, is it? No, no, that's a, the big state school that, uh, in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. The University of Kentucky Wildcats, big, big blue nation. All know? right, all right, all right. So what was it like being a, a, a African-American a student at the University of Kentucky during a period in which you went? Yeah, it it was um, it was an interesting journey, man. Because uh, I, you know, I look back on it now, and I think uh, I wonder what my experience would would have been if I could have been some of these other students who all they have to think about is going to class. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but for us, when we go to universities, particularly if we go to a predominantly white university, there are always these other um, um, obstacles or other kind of experiences that we have to deal with at the same time uh, that we have to deal with class. We have mm-hmm. to deal with going to class, certainly, but there was always there were always these other battles that we had to fight. Right. In terms of of being uh, accepted, in terms of being treated equally, and 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 we were always. You know, through the Black Student Union or through our various uh, fraternities or sororities, we always have uh-huh. protest this yep. or fight that. Yep. Or, you know, it, you know, push for every little inch, every little we, inch we, we could get in yep. order just to have a, a safe and comfortable environment in which to grow intellectually. So, did y'all have a black? Did y'all have no a black dorm? Uh, no, we didn't have a black dorm, but we 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 had uh, what was called the Martin Luther King Jr. Cultural Center, mm-hmm. uh, and it opened up uh, right after I got there as a freshman. I think I think it opened in my first semester as a sophomore, mm-hmm. but it became the kind of hub for uh, our our university life. You know, mm-hmm. we were always there. That was it was a nice space where you could come and meet other black students to folks were eating lunch there yeah. doing, doing their homework there it was a place where you could go and find resources it was it was very important that it was the place where uh incoming freshmen or undergraduates could find upperclassmen who could help them navigate yeah. you know the various obstacles that they might encounter at the university of kentucky i, mean, I can't rem- i can't think of how many times as a junior or senior I was there and some hapless lost <laughs> freshman <laughs> wandered in with some problem that we yep. had to, okay, look, no, no, no. Take a deep breath. It's going to be fine. Have uh-huh. a seat. Now here's what you do. Uh-huh. Go over to Funkhauser in room 223. <laughs> ask so-and-so. You get this form. You take that form over to Patterson Office Tower. Uh-huh. Turn in. It's X, Y, Z. And so, yeah, it became kind of a kind of central hub for the community help kind of uh and, and there was also cultural programming that that the culture center did throughout the year which is kind of the only way we could kind of get the kinds of things on campus that we wanted to have in terms of speakers and, and uh, concerts and and uh other kinds of of opportunities to participate in campus life so now that, that really became the kind of center of our lives now was there uh, a particular faculty member or a, a member of the administrative that was like an oasis a go-to that person that everybody kind of looked to for solace did you have a person like that on your campus 
Well, we had, you know, for us, it was very often um, graduate students, which was okay. interesting because Grad students. Uh-huh. you would have African-American graduate students who were teaching undergraduate courses while they were trying to do their graduate work. Uh, and okay. uh, very often, <clears throat> excuse me, very often they were some of the people that that undergraduates would go to. Okay. Uh, there was also the director of the cultural center who was, you know, while I was there was, was uh, my brother Frank H. Walker, okay. who incidentally is also a member of the Appalachian Poets and was uh, the poet laureate for Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And so he did a lot of, he, he was that kind of resource as well. Um, for me, there was a, um, a wonderful sister who was kind of like a grandmother, mm-hmm. but her name was Dr. Doris Wilkinson. Okay. She, he was always one of those who would look see me on campus and always had that word to kind of kind of uh encourage you, you know, to uh, tell you, yeah, you can do this, you can keep going, you can and this is what you need to do. Uh-huh. Even if you even if you uh need to go somewhere else to finish doing it, if this if this environment is too toxic, right. don't worry about that, go do that. You know, and as mm-hmm. long as you're taking care of yourself, matriculating and doing what you need to do. Yeah. So, so yeah, there were those persons who were there. That's beautiful. Um, that is such a part That is such a part of the ahead. black. That is such a part of the black college experience that you will never find right. in a book. Never. Right. As as right. well as this. Now, tell me if you guys did this on your campus. If you was walking across campus and you seen another black student like a half a mile away, what would you do over the there? Heads up, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, that that dude could be a speck on horizon if he was a black speck. Come on now. Come on now. You know you get that nine. You good? You know you get that you good? Yeah, I'm good. All right. That's it. That's it. That's it. Beautiful. You know, that's that high side. Yeah, man. Good. Yes, all good. All right. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Look out for each other. Who else is going to look out for us? Exactly, exactly. And for us, the other interesting piece was, and I don't know if you had this experience, but in the uh, in the, in the cafeterias and all that, that was mostly black women back there doing all the cooking and fixing and that. You know, they were mama for everybody. They would look Aww, out. Oh, that's like, beautiful. You now here, white are folks you, back there. Are you eating? You know that whole nine. So, <laughs> but yeah, that was that was you know how we do. We created yep. the support wherever we are. Isn't that beautiful? To help us kind of, uh, you know, get to where we need to go. So, yeah. yeah. Man, you taking me back. <laughs> because because that's, a, that's, that's so important to the acculturation of a, a African-American adult. You know right. what I mean? Because, right. I mean, you know, when we travel away from that school experience, we kind of look, if we don't go back home, like I didn't go back home, I went straight to another city. We kind of look for that. Right vibration you know what i mean uh kind of a thing now now speaking of community um you know you're a poet and i'm going to tease you a little bit i i got an album from the watts poets i got another album of the last poets but i don't have can i get an album of the afrolation poets collective (laughs) yeah when when y'all when y'all 12 inch coming out when y'all lp coming out man come on Tell us about man, the Afrolation Poets Collective. Right, right. Yeah, you gonna make me get on get on to our um, our group page 
and, uh, all and right. say, "Yo, we need we need a we need an album because we, we you got to do it, man. Vinyl is coming back. Shit. Yeah, yeah. We got a couple of anthologies, but we don't have a we don't have a spoken word album that you can get. I, I think that's an idea that we need to kick around. Yeah, uh, definitely. But um, shit, it but won't yeah, cost man, you a thing, man. The writing group has been a real blessing for for me as a writer and for other younger writers coming up as we try to create that kind of community where uh, writers can be nurtured and can be mentored and can find a place where they can go and share their work where they don't feel like they're the only person out there doing it, you know, because right. that, that can happen to us sometimes as, as, as black folk that we, when we're doing something, for example, science fiction and fantasy, it, it can be sometimes easy for you to think, Am I the only black person out here, you know, trying to write science fiction and fantasy uh-huh. because of, of, you know, the challenges of the publishing landscape? And, yeah. and, and, uh, and so we have to have those kinds of communities where uh, our young folk can go and see, no, I'm not the only person. And, and here's the history of our folk in this genre or in this medium or <clears throat> in this artistic endeavor. And, and that there are traditions, there are traditions in black poetry that go back, there are traditions in black philosophy, there are traditions in <clears throat> black writing of fiction and of science fiction and fantasy. And sometimes because the, the, the predominant culture is not going to teach us about ourselves, we have to have those opportunities where we can learn about ourselves. Um, because, you know, folks will, folks will know about uh, uh, the author of the Conan novels, but they won't know about Charles Saunders, right? Who wrote Imaru, you know, who mm-hmm. was a kind of black Conan character. Yep. Folks will know about um, Heinlein and these other science fiction writers, but they won't know about Samuel Delaney, mm-hmm. you know, a black writer who was writing science fiction back in the day. And so, it, one of the things, one of the roles that these kinds of, of groups like the Appalachian Poets uh, play in whatever genre or, or artistic space we find ourselves in is to teach us about our history in those spaces so that we know we're not the first and the only and we're not by ourselves and there's a whole tradition of our folk, you know, doing this kind of art and artistic endeavor so that we, we know that we're not you know, floating out here in space by ourselves. And, um, and so, yeah, that's what, that's one of the things the Appalachian Poets did for us because there were, there were no other groups for us. So we had to create our own group so that we would have that sense of community and we would get together on Monday nights in the Martin Luther King Jr. Cultural Center on campus. And we'd bring our little poetry and we'd bring copies and we'd pass it around and we'd all go around and each read our poem and listen wow. to critique from our fellow members and, okay. and talk about finding our voice and talk about, uh, you know, the, the content of, of, of this poem and, and how this word on this line might be better if you use this one. You know, we, that, that opportunity wow. to kind of, of, of find your voice, uh-huh. learn your craft, you know, grow in that artistic endeavor so that when you are out in the public, you could stand on solid feet and say, yes, I am a poet, or yes, I am a, a novelist, or uh, yes, I am a singer, or whatever artistic endeavor it is that you were trying to, you know, uh, uh, find some sense of, of ground in. And so that, that's what I think is best about these 
these uh, communities that we create for ourselves and that and that um, it, how important it is to find one wherever you are and whatever whatever it is you're doing find a community of folk like-minded folk who look like you who have that same history and that same perspective so that you know you're not by yourself now do you guys have like a web page or something yes uh you can find us at um theafrolatianpoets.org uh or if you just type in the afrolatian poets in google you know we'll it'll all come up you know? okay that's one of the one of the wonderful things that we didn't have back at the university yep. you know, back in the day you had to go to the card catalog, but they don't know anything about <laughs> they that. They don't know man. about the card catalog, man. They don't know, they don't know nothing about the card catalog, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm actually I'm on your page right now, uh, the Afrolation. So that's uh, Africa and Appalachian. So A F F R I L A T A C H I A N Poets dot com. Correct. And look like yeah. you guys got about twenty, almost thirty people on your on your uh, page, man. For, uh, let's see, Frank yeah. X Walker from Kentucky, uh, Nikki right. Finney from uh, Kentucky. Looks like here. Oh, you got a lot. You got some professors up in here, man. Uh, oh yeah, you got yeah. published authors, everything. Yeah, All right, book award winners, the whole All nine. Right. Yeah, we've been doing, man. We've been doing it for twenty five years, so folk are doing some really. Uh, productive and and powerful work, and so it's gratifying to be part of that. Beautiful, beautiful. So now we, uh, what are we like? Uh, Twenty minutes into the conversation, so we have a fuller, you know, understanding of uh, of Gerald Coleman. So now let's talk about the novels. Um, okay. The first one, uh, the Night Falls. Right. Let me see here. Uh, the Night Falls. When Night Falls. Night Falls book one. Um, so it looks like uh, it's gonna be like a, one of those hero journey kind of a thing with the with the with the bad folks coming. Like, kind of give us a a kind of sense of, of of the plot. Right, and the, the my one line sale. You know, they always tell you have a yeah have elevator, elevator pitch. pitch. Yeah, uh huh. You know, and I usually tell folks if I'm at a con or somewhere, and they come over to the table to check the books out. I, I generally tell folks if the Black Panther meets the Lord of the Rings. Wow. That's my one sentence. The Black Panther That's meets the Lord of the Rings. Okay. Kids. Yeah. And so if you're into swords and magic and all of that, um, you know, that's what the the, the uh, series is about. But it's just, it's written with us as the heroes and the central characters, which mm-hmm. you don't often find. Uh, you know, I read all of that. Uh, growing up, you know, the Lord of the Rings and the Wheel of Time and um, the the uh, Faded Sun series and the Black Company and uh, stuff about Drips Duarden and Elric of Melman Bonet. All I mean that the the Dragon Riders of Pern. I was that was what I was reading. I was reading nothing but science fiction and fantasy. Mm-hmm. But what was missing was me. Right. You know, there were there were there weren't any characters in any of those uh, adventures who looked like me that I could kind of you know relate to or uh, center myself in the story. There was always an extra step that I had to take to to um, empathize with the hero because the hero didn't look like me. Exactly. And so when I finally sat down to 
to write this series because I always, even though even when I was writing just poetry, I always knew that at some point I wanted to write science fiction and fantasy. It's a genre I've grown up reading. It's a genre I love. It's a genre that's been so entertaining to me over the years. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to do was to create something that I didn't have. I wanted, I wanted, you know, black folk to be able to go to the science fiction and fantasy section and find what I never could find right. when I was a kid and growing up. And, and, and to see the book that I, you know, I wanted to write the, the series that I wanted to read when I was 18 or when I was 15 or when I was 25. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that was the kind of genesis of, of the series. And so When Night Falls is that kind of classic hero tale about, um, you know, the, the warrior who, who is going to have to face the great evil that uh, is attempting to uh, subvert and conquer the world. But the difference, the difference is that the characters, now it's a, it's a, it's a, um, a, a diverse cast of characters. I mean, you're going to find... Uh, a little bit of everybody in there, but the heroes, the protagonists, are are going to be black folk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing that I, I really paid attention to was how I write women in the story. Okay, because very often in these in this genre, women are treated as two dimensional characters. Hmm. Um, they aren't they aren't treated as full fledged human beings. They're often treated as um, you know, uh, uh, a a tool of the male character. You know, the hero okay. is always a male character, and the women often tend to be these two-dimensional characters that are only there to serve the interests of the male character. Okay. Uh, so for me, I knew that not only did I want to write about black folk as heroes, and my main character is a black male, but mm-hmm. I also wanted to write the, the female character's that existed in the world as fully fledged human beings and not these two dimensional characters that, um, that didn't really, in my, in my opinion, uh, represent women well. And so you find that there are Asian characters, there are native characters, there are women. uh, And so there's a very diverse cast of characters, but at the center of all of that is uh, um, black folk. Mm Because I wanted to make sure that, um, that we could finally see ourselves in a genre that we read. I, you know, that's one of the things you and I discussed earlier that that was there has there has been this assumption in the broader publishing world that that black folks don't uh, read Gerald. or, or Gerald. Uh, remember remember we had that conversation. Jerry, remember we had a right. conversation about euphemisms. Right. White publishers don't think. Black people buy sci-fi, period. Right. That's it. They don't think they don't think they, they at least they didn't back in the day. But now that we have right. Gerald Coleman in the mix, we got you know uh, uh, Milton Davis in the mix. We got all these other people creating content. Once they get right. a whiff of that buzz, uh, all of a sudden they're going to have a black imprint, which is I think what right. some of these larger publishing houses are doing now. And so, yeah, so right. no, white publishers didn't want to put the effort have... out to have black content for black people. They didn't. Right. And so what do we do? Just like Gerald said, of... we create our own right. shit. Go ahead, bro. Right. 
no, I was just going to say, if you look at folk like Tor now, seeing what independent um, writers have been doing, they're now trying to run up and, you know, put out folks in the same genre, right? right. Mm-hmm. But they, but that's only happening because, as you said a moment ago, because we've taken upon ourselves to do it ourselves, and yep. now that they're starting to see that it's profitable, mm-hmm. now, okay, now, now let's 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 go and find some folks to put out, right? right? But that's only happened because, as you said, we we decided, okay, y'all not going to do it, we're going to do it ourselves. Exactly, exactly. Now here's the thing, though, the challenge that. From from the conversations I've been having with other novelists, is that when you're a part of these different houses, there's a, a, a firewall of editorial that you got to go through. So yeah. I feel like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like that an indie black novelist would have, you know, more control and and, and be able to express all the nuances of their characters and their plots than they would in a white concern. Am I off on that, Gerald? No, no. And and I've gotten, I've had these questions asked by some folk. I've had these questions asked at cons. I, I, I've even talked to an editor or two mm-hmm. who asked me about publishing with, um, and the reason I use the term major publishing houses is because what, what that generally you're talking about are the five major publishers that exist that have now you have indies, you have small publishers, you have what's called vanity presses, but they're basically the, the what's called kind of the big five publishers that include folk like Tor and Delray and you know et cetera. Okay. Um, and and so the question is, you know, do you want to be published by one of the big publishers? And my mm-hmm. my response was always. Um, I didn't, I didn't try and go that route because of what happens a lot of times with indie writers is they try to go that route and when it doesn't work, then they fall back to indie publishing. But I never even tried because I didn't want to have those arguments. I didn't okay. want to argue about, about, as you were saying a moment ago, I didn't want to argue about the story arc for this black character. Right. I did. I didn't want to argue about the fact that the main character was a black character. Right. Right. I didn't want to argue about putting the black character on the cover <laughs> mm. you know because these are some of the these are some of the things that have happened there, there have even been times where when as you were saying about those obstacles when a black author was being published they would actually take one of the minor white characters in the story and put that character on the cover instead of the black main character now this is a story that you heard from other that, authors that, these are some of the things that put that that predominantly white publishers have done in the past. Okay. And I didn't want to have any of those arguments. Gotcha. I, didn't want, I didn't want to have an argument about who should go on the cover. Right. No, of my main black characters going on the cover. That's the whole point behind my writing these books is to, is to fill the void in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't want to have those editorial arguments about, well, why, as you said, well, why wouldn't this character do X instead of Y. Well, because you're bringing your cultural bias to the story. Right. And and what you think a black character is or isn't capable of. I don't have those hang up. Ah. And so I don't want to have those. I don't want to have those arguments. I'm going to write the story that I want to write for the audience that I want to write it for. Now, I personally believe 
that any person who picks up my my uh, my story will love it. Okay. But I also know that I'm writing that story specifically for black readers. Right. Right, right. Right. So, so, so I don't, I don't feel like my the story that I'm writing is a story that excludes anyone. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I know who I know the audience that I'm writing for. Right. Why I'm creating the story? Mm-hmm. Um, because I have, I have, I have white readers, I have black readers, I have Asian readers, I have readers of all backgrounds. But just like you know, that the stories that have been written like Divergent and. Um, uh, uh, the Hunger Games. Those were white stories, basically written for a white audience from a white perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we don't have any problem with that. <laughs> you don't hear any kind of discussion or or argument about how that's limiting. Yep. But now, if you say here's a black character in a black story written from a black per- perspective, then all of a sudden you start having these odd conversations about whether or not that's limiting. Well, the the white story isn't limiting, so why mm-hmm. would the black story be limiting? Exactly, exactly. And so, so, so I think you have to understand who you're writing to. Uh, but I think a great story, regardless of who the characters are, if you're writing a great story, readers who don't have, uh, who don't approach it with a in in bias, mm-hmm. will enjoy it. Of course, of course. I mean. I usually use the uh, the the black comedy club uh, argument. You know, I don't know how to use right. that here, but I mean, you ever watch Kung Fu Action Theater back in the day? Oh yeah, man! On Sunday afternoon after yeah. church, yeah, my grandmother would have it. My grandmother would have it on all day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we sat there, we watched it, and then afterwards you go outside and pretend like we're you know whoever the right. characters were and everything. Right, and then, uh, like we have the iron claw, uh-huh. you know, yeah, 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 the drunken monkey, you know, uh-huh. and you're doing all of that. And the reason why we enjoyed it is was because it was unique, it was well done, and it was steeped in their own cultural myths. It was something different, right? You know, but right. nobody ever said, "Well, right. damn, man, how come there's no white people in uh in exactly. uh Five Deadly Venoms?" You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Right, where's, the, right. where's the black? Right. Where's the black character? And right. uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't know. Whatever they, they had some wild names, man. The monkey, right. the monkey right. monk or something or whatever it is. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? So yeah. yeah. So that that whole idea, that whole conversation that they throw at us is just that colonialism, that racism, that imperial, right. whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean? Right. I think the technical term nowadays is is just bullshit arguments that they're trying to put on us but see the beautiful thing is with the internet and with uh this technology there's no barrier between us and our audience you follow me and so man i gotta tell you i'm I'm opening up facebook again i committed facebook harry Carey years ago but i didn't know um that facebook had like i knew about the renaissance because i'm out here talking to people but i didn't know that the uh, that Facebook group that you mentioned has such a large following. I mean, right. uh, I think when I talked to Milton, he told me there were more than a thousand people uh, that were members yeah. of this group. So uh, it that's has, man, it has grown. It has grown exponentially. It's really blown up. And you're correct in that 
what technology has done is that technology has, has leveled the playing field in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, because if you look at, for example, if you look at the sales numbers last year, uh, indie authors were more than half the pie. You know, you had you, when you look at the percentage of where where people were spending their money on books, indie authors were taking up. It had begun at five, ten percent, working mm-hmm. with thirty some percent, and it, and then and and now it's up to almost half the pie. So wow. that's one of the reasons that that the big publishers are now having to diversify their rosters because mm-hmm. that's what they're seeing. That's that's what's eating into. You know, you hear this. Excuse me. You hear this. Um, this narrative about book sales going down. Mm-hmm. No, book sales, book sales aren't going down. What's happening is that, that uh, book sales are, are being generated in other areas of the industry. Hmm. Now it's not just, you know, folks aren't just buying from major publishers, they're buying indie publishers. And so since the, the major publishers aren't getting those dollars, mm-hmm. the narrative becomes, oh, well, sales are down. No, sales are fine. Sales wow. are just now diversifying so that people aren't just buying from tour. People aren't just buying from, you know, the major houses. People are buying books from all of these indie authors. Are you, and indie, are and you serious? Presses. Yeah, man. So, so you mean to tell me, you mean to tell me that if Borders Books was to let the indie people in strong, they'd have still been around? Is that what you're telling me? Man, still been around. Still been around. But Amazing. It's that, it's that gatekeeper, it's that gatekeeper thing. They, their model for example, uh, and, and, and I've said this at cons before, when you look at how uh, the music industry was disrupted by technology, right? Mm-hmm. You, had, you had major major labels now, so, so that it used to be that in order to get your music out, you had to be signed by a major label. Right. That was the only way, right? That's not, that's, the technology changed all of that and disrupted the industry to the point that Chance the Rapper doesn't even need a deal to mm. make millions of dollars and mm-hmm. to make the music that he wants to make. Chance the Rapper had folk coming begging him to sign contracts. He said, why? I don't need you to make up, you know, make $20 million. I can do that myself because technology has, a, has arrived at the point where you don't need those gatekeepers to make it happen. Wow. And, and the publishing industry is in the throes of that now because okay. technology has made it to the to the degree, for example, 15, 20 years ago, in order for me to do what I've done with my novel, I would have had to uh, had enough uh, capital to buy 50,000 books from a printer and have them stacked up in my house and my garage and what have you. And then I would have had to go basically door to door selling. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, with the, with the, with the uh, arrival of print on demand, I don't have to do that. In wow. other words, when you my, my books don't exist anywhere in a warehouse. Mm-hmm. With print on demand, my book is 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 in the cloud. So when you buy my when you go on to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Apple iBooks or Kobo or Pounds, wherever you go to buy my book, you click on there, you buy my book, and then the the printer prints that copy. The printer doesn't have to buy. I don't have to have 50,000 copies of the book printed, stored somewhere. One copy. Because printing on demand uh-huh. will, will do it every, on demand. If, if 10 people buy my book today, they'll print 10 copies. 
Wow. If 100 people buy my book next week, they'll print 100 copies. Mm -hmm. If one person buys my book tonight, they'll print one copy. Mm. And that's what Print on Demand did. Print on Demand made it possible uh, to to do that without the without the added expenses and having to store stuff and all of that. Mm-hmm. And then with the onset of ebooks and and the digital marketplace, because I mean, let me put it this way: I personally haven't been to a mall for maybe seven years. Wow. Okay. Everything I buy, I buy online. I buy shoes, I buy jeans, I buy coats. Whatever it is I'm shopping for that I used to get in my car and drive to a mall and walk into a store to buy, all I do now is open up my my iPad and find their website and buy (laughs) it, and they mail it to me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that's what e-commerce and the technology of e-commerce has done. Mm -hmm. And so... What is that same thing has happened in publishing is that, you know, when you go to buy my book now, my, I don't have to have a publisher who has uh, has contracts with 3000 bookstores across the country and they print 100,000 copies and ship mm-hmm. them all out to all of the bookstores. Mm-hmm. And then people get in their cars and drive to the bookstore and find my book on the bookshelf where my publisher has paid to have it placed and then buy it. That I don't have to do any of that anymore. Now, let me let me interject here, e-commerce. man. Let me let me interject you, you, here you because don't have that problem. Let me interject because I feel like even though everything you're saying is 110% correct, you mm-hmm. never had a daydream of walking into Borders Books and going to the sci-fi section and and seeing your 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 novels there, man. You never you never had that little that little daydream. Am I am I the only Ten one? Years <laughs> Ten, Ten years, years ago. Ten years ago. Okay. Ten years ago, definitely, uh-huh. because that's how I used to buy my books, right? And that was the only model available. You know, I used to hunt bookstores. You know, you yep. go because they always had our section back in the corner. Yeah, right. Yeah. The sci-fi fantasy section was all because they were, for whatever reason, was embarrassed by the genre, <laughs> but they would put us back in the corner, right? Yep. You had to go walk over back into that corner, and then you'd scan the bookshelves to find to see if you could find the, the latest thing out. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that's how I used to buy books too. And so certainly that was. You know, that was a part of the vision, but that was a part of the vision because that was the only sales model we knew. Yeah. That was the only sales model that was available to us. And if you think about it, kids growing up now, they don't have that model. Kids growing up now, their model is, their model, huh. if, if they daydreamed about it, their daydream would be to be able to click on Barnes & Noble and when that when the web page came up, that book would be on the front in that top little section of new releases. You know what wow. I'm mean? saying? That would be their that would be their dream because the model of how they purchased is so right. different right. from how we purchased, uh, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty years ago. That's true. And so, so certainly that's that's the case. But the other part, I think that that does bolster what you just said is that the other thing that is happening in publishing that I think is, is beautiful is independent bookstores are starting to thrive again. Oh, beautiful. You know, okay. Big okay. chains like big chains like borders has gone and Barnes and Nobles having their struggles and all of that. Yeah. But when you talk about, uh, indie bookstores, uh, in towns that are locally owned, those are still thriving. Wow. Those are still doing well. Okay. Because they're finding ways to 
to kind of and and then I think it's also a part of that you know that big push has in the last three to five years of of shopping local. Okay. You know, even American Express got in on that. They have a shop local Saturday or whatever that kind of model is. But there are a lot of people who are now really kind of turning back to the local market and away from giant chains in whatever uh, whatever sales space you're talking about. Not just clothes, but books. Uh, for example, what I always do anytime I've moved to a new city is I find a, a nice local pizza place. I find a local coffee shop. I find a local dry cleaners. You know, mm. that I, 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 you know, I'm not looking for uh, Papa John's. You know, <laughs> I want to know what's the local spot that makes the craziest, best pizza on the planet. You right. know what I mean? Right, right. I'm not looking for Starbucks. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for the local coffee spot, uh, you know, like Octane or Rev Coffee. That, you know, I'm looking for the local spot because okay. the local spot, when you spend your dollar at the local spot, it it man it multiplies at a greater rate in the community mm-hmm. than spending at some of these major chain spots. Gotcha. Now, Starbucks is fine if you're somewhere where you don't know the surroundings and you like, okay, you know, let me see where what's the where, where's the nearest Starbucks? I can go and get a cup of coffee. But in terms of not traveling but living in your own community, what I tend to do is I try to find a local spot and. People are, you know, there's a sister in um, New York who's opening up a new uh, local um, bookstore. I think it's in Brooklyn. It's called The Lit Bar. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. And more and more, yeah, there are more and more uh, people who are who are opening local uh, independent bookstores. And, you know, it, it, the other upside of that is it's much easier to get your book in there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a local shop um, in my hometown of Lexington, Kentucky, uh, called the Wild Fig. And, uh, you know, all it took was a, a conversation on, on Facebook Messenger, and I was able to ship my books there and they're on the shelf now. Wow. Um, Newt Davis just, uh, he just had a big, big sale with the sister who runs a, a, books, a local bookstore, I think it's in the Bahamas. Huh. And he just shipped a whole big shipment down there, and and he's he's been regularly posting because he posts pictures of folk buying his books, and he posts them on uh, Facebook. Oh, that's and beautiful. It's a locally owned bookstore. Wow. And so, yeah, I think I think I think the, the industry has gone through a, a bunch of changes and will continue. Uh-huh. But I think that narrative that people aren't buying books that's not true. Just okay. like the narrative that black folks don't buy books that's not true. It's mm-hmm. just that those spending patterns have changed yeah. and people are buying books in different places now. And and Tor is now having to compete with, with indie folk. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, um, there's a lot of uh, creators and writers that listen to the show. And so I always kind of like to talk about the mechanics of the craft. Can you tell us about okay. your writing ritual? Okay. Uh <laughs> I'm I'm kind of unorthodox, you know. I've gone through. I, I know that there are folks who write every day. They have a schedule by which they write. They write at a certain time every day, uh, and that that's their that's their kind of schedule. Um, for me, I think you do what works because the same thing that works for one person isn't going to work for another. 
Okay. And if if you if you can only really write at three in the morning, then mm-hmm. do that. If that works for you, if it whatever it is that allows you to create the greatest story mm-hmm. and to and to do your best writing, I think that's what you should do. I think we need to throw out this idea that there is this kind of standard template that you should use in order to, you know, you should get up every morning at 6 a.m. and write for two hours straight and then, you know, edit for another three hours. You know, if that's what works for you, hey, great, do that. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's not what works for me. For me, I do a lot more uh, thinking. Uh, I, 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 For example, if I, I when I sit down to write the next book, book three, I know what the general story is supposed to be. In other words, what I need to accomplish in book three so that by the time I get to book five, the whole story has been has been met, right? That whole arc has been completed. Mm-hmm. And so I, so knowing that, then when I sit down, I then break it down to decide, okay, so knowing what I need to accomplish in, in book three, what do I need to accomplish in chapter one? Right. And so then I'll think about that and then I'll think about all of the intricacies of what needs to go into that. Which characters am I writing about? Where did they leave off? What are the issues that I'm, I'm, I'm weaving into their story and, and, and how I get them from point A to point B in this particular book? And then I'll sit down and write that chapter. And then once I've written that chapter, I, I like to sit on it for a few days and then go back to it to make sure that. Uh, for me, I, I think it was Agatha Christie's character, um, uh, Hercule Poirot. You know, her oh, that's my man. That's that's my man. You uh-huh. know, yeah, he always does the thing where he, where when he gets to a point in the case, he says he let he, he lets the gray cells work, right? And what that means is he kind of puts it on the back burner in his mind and lets his subconscious mind work on the problem. And then once it works on the problem, it presents the solution to his conscious mind, and then he can move forward okay. with his investigation of the case. And so for me, I like to do, once I once I kind of write out the chapter, <clears throat> I like to let my subconscious work on it. And hmm. it's amazing, once you start to trust your yourself as a writer, how your mind will present stuff to you. Then I've been on the treadmill or in the shower or driving somewhere, and my mind will just drop a piece of the puzzle and say, okay, boom. And, and, and the thought occurs, and you're like, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's what needs to happen next. Uh-huh. Let me jot that down so I don't forget it. And then I can go back and weave that into the chapter. Uh, and then I, then I can finally get to the, the editing part. And for me, I know, for example, you know, my good friend Milton, what he likes to do is Milton likes to write his whole book and then go back and edit. Mm-hmm. He likes to write out the whole story and then go back to the beginning and then go through and edit the whole thing. And yeah. for me, my process is a little different. I like to write a chapter, edit the chapter, put that chapter to bed, and then move to the next chapter. So that by the time I get to the end, I'm finished. I don't have to go back and do anything else. I do it as I go. Okay. Uh, and so that's part of my that's just part of my personal process. But, now, um, in terms but of like, uh, yeah, in terms of like the other part of it. So after you finish, you, you, you at the end of your process, do you do your own editing? You have a team, um, laying out of the book electronically cover design. How is that accomplished? 
Yeah. I have a, a couple of uh, beta readers who I allow to read the chapter and send it back just to catch um, typos and those kinds of things and then to ask me some questions if something isn't clear. And, and then that's how I that's how I work through the editing process. Okay. Um, once I'm finished, now the map, for example, the map that uh, that goes along with the with the series is a map that I kind of I created the map, but then I sent those sketches to an actual cartographer, and they uh, you know created the map that you see in the book based mm-hmm. upon my sketches. Okay. Okay. Uh, with the cover, the cover happens the same way. I have a have an artist who's it's the same artist who's done both books, and I I send him a uh, a kind of a mock up that I've done with the kind of with the kind of pose that I'm looking for, and then give him the information of okay, is like for example in book one, he the character is superimposed <clears throat> on a city. So that's basically what I told him I wanted. And then he sends me sketches and I give the okay. And then he finally finishes it up. Okay. And with book two, it was, he's in a forest and this is, he's fighting this creature and this is what the creature looks like. This is the pose I want. And then he sketches it out and I say, approve the pose and all that. And then he goes about finishing the whole thing. And then we do the lettering. Um, so I try to be very, um, involved in the process at all stages uh which is one of the things that you have to do if you're an indie author you can't you can't do what you can do if you for, for example a tour which is you just write the book and send it in yeah and they do all of the rest of that uh mm-hmm. now they'll send you back galleys and all of that but in terms of of the kind of hands-on stuff that you have to do as an indie you you, you have to be understand and be prepared that that's what uh, a part of the process now, where uh, like did you? You can't sit back and 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 think that once you put the book out there that there's nothing else to do. As right. an indie, you have to also understand how to market it. You have to be actively engaged in marketing it. Right. Before no you get to that, that part, story. before you get to that part, where did you find the map maker and the artist? <clears throat> the map maker I found on a site for cartographers. Uh, you go online and type in cartographer. And uh, the site will come up, and you you register on the site, and it's basically a site of artists who create maps. Wow! And there's a section for you to commission a map, so that you you know. And so I went in, I commissioned, I told them what I wanted. I'm a fantasy writer. I'm looking for someone to write a map. I mean, to draw a map for me. Mm-hmm. And then I had people who from those artists were able to see that job and bid on it, and and let me know what they would charge for the kind of map that I wanted. And then I just chose the person that I thought would work well for my project and, 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 uh, and then went from there. Uh, What about the uh, artists for the cover? Was it the same process? Yeah. Same process. There are several, there's a place called the art station. There's a place called deviant art. And, and, and basically it was just getting out there and looking for artists in the genre and then seeing the work that they had created to see if it was the kind of style that I wanted for, for my novels and mm-hmm. then communicating with the person. And then uh, again, deciding on what I wanted and fi- figuring a price that we could agree on mm-hmm. and then a process. Okay. Um, I think, I think that, that what's interesting, what's important, I think, again, this is where 
that community piece we've been talking about comes in. Mm-hmm. Because if you're someone who's just now starting out, it could it, you have to be careful because there are folk out there who will who will basically um, steal your money. You know, <laughs> you yeah. send the money and 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 that's going to be the last you hear from them. You don't have your artwork. Yeah. And so uh, one of the ways that you can kind of avoid that is to tap into a community of writers who can point you in the direction of some artists who have a good reputation mm-hmm. who, who will do the work, you know, okay. I think that's important. Cause if Beautiful. you just get out there by yourself, man, it's the wild, wild west out there. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, 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 you could get taken real quick from some folk who, who are unprofessional, who, who don't really uh, have your best interest at heart. And, uh, and it's it's good to be able to have that those kinds of references uh, from people who can tell you, yes, this artist will do the work that you need to be done and do it well and do it on schedule and not charge you, uh, you know, a house payment. Right. I mean, charge you, you know, an arm and a leg to get it done. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's vitally important. Now, you uh, alluded to marketing. What's your process, your approach to marketing? Man, marketing is the, really the, the last kind of frontier for publishing. And, and in my estimation, it's the only reason to have a publisher. Okay. If you can find a publisher who is really willing to spend the money it takes to properly market your book, then I think, then I think signing on is a good idea. Otherwise, you're just paying folks to do nothing. You know, that's something you can do yourself. There's just no reason for it. There's no reason to, to sign with a publisher to be able to get your book out because you can do that yourself. You can right. get a, as we've just been talking about, you can get a map maker, you can get an editor, you can get a, a cover artist, you can do all of that without a publisher. Uh, so from my, from my perspective, the only reason to really be engaged with a publisher at this stage is if you, if you have someone who's willing to spend 20, 30, 40, $50,000 to market your book uh, out there. And that, that that's really kind of the last kind of frontier mm-hmm. for why I would think a publisher is even necessary at this stage, mm-hmm. given the technology and what's available. Uh, but if you're not doing that, if you're an indie, then you, you, <clears throat> excuse me, then you really have to kind of learn a lot of the basics of how you take a, an image of your book or, or, quote unquote an ad and get it before the how you get your book in front of the audience that you're looking for mm-hmm. and probably the first thing you need to do is figure out what who that audience is who okay. are you writing the book for so that you know who you're trying to reach mm-hmm. uh, and once you do that then it's a question of uh, and this other thing I think is very important is to get the proper materials get the proper um, images that will market your book in a positive way and again that starts I think with the cover of your book, because as cliche as it sounds, mm-hmm. people are still to this day judging your book by the cover. Nah. <laughs> if you have a terrible cover, uh-huh. people are, you could be the greatest writer in history, but if you have a terrible cover, people are going to dismiss the book because of the, the level of the quality. So if, if you really have to have quality images and quality imagery mm-hmm. to kind of you know, get people's attention so that they right. look at that and say, Oh, wow, that looks great. Now let me, now that, I, now that it's caught my attention, now let me see what it's about. 
Gotcha. Right. So that the first stage is how good it looks. The second stage is how well you've written it. So you, you've got to, again, that's the basics. You've got to write a great book, but you also have to have really beautiful images, not just of your cover, but then of the, of the, um, the, the imagery that you're going to use for marketing. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I just recently just you know, stepped my game up this at the beginning of this year in terms of, of purchasing and creating some new marketing images that I think are, are, are very, uh, you know, eye catching and very beautiful and look very professional. They look like something that, you know, a major publishing house would have put out. I think, okay. And I think that's necessary. And the, and the, and the plus side is that it's, it's, it's easy enough for you to do. Um, there isn't anything that you can't do now as an indie Mm-hmm. that publishers are doing. You can make your book and your marketing and your advertising look just as good as anything the big publishers are producing. Okay. You just have to be willing to kind of do the work. And so, so you know, find, finding those beautiful images, creating those beautiful marketing images, um, make sure you've got a website, make sure you, so that whenever you put something out there, you, you know, the people have two and three opportunities to see you know, to click on something and be immediately taken to somewhere where they can purchase purchase your content. Okay. Um, and then it's a question of finding those places to put it. And that's one of the beauties now of uh, social media and the Internet is finding those places. For example, you can take for an example as Facebook is finding those groups like the State of Black Science Fiction. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of readers. And so as, as a member of the State of Black Science Fiction, you can go in there and post about your book and it'll be in front of, you know, all these thousands of readers who will get an opportunity to see it. And then you have your link, you'll click back to the book where they can purchase it. Uh, so, so finding those places on, and then for example, with Twitter, understanding how you get your book on Twitter in front of other people. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's really not just about the content, but that's about understanding how hashtags actually work. You know, people <laughs> throw up all of these hashtags under uh, when they're posting. But it's very important to understand that, for example, if you're putting, if you're, if you're advertising uh, a science fiction book, then if you, if you just put um, hashtag sci-fi under your post, then anybody who goes on the Twitter and looks up sci-fi, your post is going to be in that thread. Okay. Right? And so, okay. Understanding to put hashtag sci-fi, hashtag fantasy, hashtag Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a hashtag for diverse books mm-hmm. because of the push now recently to have more diverse books for our kids. Mm-hmm. So understanding how those work and then being able to do that. But it's essential. It's, excuse me. It's essentially about knowing who you're pitching your book to mm-hmm. and then figuring out where they are online and then marketing to them. And there are, you know, a number of ways to do that. I just want to say this, uh, Gerald, you've been very gracious with your time. Uh, As we close out, I want you to speak to two audiences. Uh, The first audience is your demographic, your readership. Uh, What would you uh, tell them uh, to, to, you know, make them understand how important it is to have your book in their hands? Okay. Go ahead. Talk to that audience first. Okay. Okay. So for me, I think it's it's vitally important because, um, not just for my book, but for all of the books that indie these black indie writers are producing, 
because I know how how um, how important and impactful reading good books uh, can be. Yeah. I think one of the most important things that that especially especially black folks can do for their children is to give them a love of reading. And the way you do that is just basically by reading with your children from the time they're very young. Mm-hmm. And that way they connect the emotionality of being in your space yeah. with reading. If your child is sitting in your lap while you read to them, then that, ex- that emotional experience will be grafted onto them and will, will extend to reading so that mm-hmm. when they read from there on out, they will connect that, that reading emotionally to being with their mother or being with their father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other thing that we know from study, from academic studies, is that reading, if your child is able to read and read well, the, you don't have to worry about all of these other, um, you know, trying to get them into certain schools as much as that's important. Certainly mm-hmm. that's important. But but giving your child a love of reading will, uh, in a lot of ways, make up for other um, benefits that you may not be able to give them, and it will help them to be able to be successful in not just in school, but in everything they do thereafter. Beautiful. And so I think what's important about what we're doing as Black writers of science fiction and fantasy is that we're putting those images in front of them in the same way that uh, that little girls have been uh, impacted positively by being able to go see Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. Then your child being able to read these stories where people who look like them are the heroes saving the day or saving the world or saving the galaxy, yeah. whatever the you know whatever is going on in your particular story in the genre in which you're writing, that makes an impact on them being able to see themselves as the heroes of the story. Beautiful. And so I hope that uh, folks will pick up not only uh, the Three Gifts series, but all of these stories that are being written by black men and women who are now writing the books that we didn't have available to us as kids when we were readers. That's true. It's beautiful. And that's powerful, man. You're exactly right about that. It's it's something special for, you know, a little, uh, a little one to walk up on the bookshelf in their living room and to see, and to see all of these, uh, you know, sci-fi books and comics and everything all by black people. Uh, right. You know, because it it, it kind of broadens their horizons. Now, for the right. creators, for the writers in the audience, um, you're farther along in the journey than a lot of them are. What advice would you give them uh, to kind of help them on their way? Wow. Um, find, your, find yourself a community. You know, how many times have we said that mm-hmm. <laughs> tonight? But I think it's vitally important. Find yourself a community of like-minded folk whatever uh, content you're creating, whatever space, whatever art space you're in, find other folk who are just like you who are trying to do what you're doing. Um, because not only is it important to have that uh, community so that you can encourage each other, but it's also important because the folk who are part of my writing community, whenever they have a question, they can, you know, get online or pick up the phone and hit me with a text or a message or, or a tweet or whatever, you know, hey, gee, what, like you said, man, uh, I, need a, I need a map. I need a map for my book. Where do I go? Right. And it's just simple enough for me to point them in the right direction. And so that's one of the important ways that the com- uh, community of, of, of folk in your particular art space is important. 
Mm-hmm. And then believe in yourself. I mean, how many times have we heard people tell us this? But it's it's vitally important. Believe in what you're doing. Understand why you're doing it. And and then keep at it. Keep pushing. And and I think here's another it, uh, another important thing that um, I think is vital. And that is, uh, you know, don't be afraid to get better. Hmm. I, I know that sounds odd, but I I, I you got to go into that a little bit. Yeah, I want particularly want writers because what what we do sometimes is, for example, with the first book, we rewrite it and we rewrite it and we rewrite it and we rewrite it and it's like put it out. Hmm. Do do the best work that you can do right now, and then put it out there, knowing that yes, you may get better, but don't be afraid of that. Right. I have no I have no problem reading the reading the person's first book then buying their second book and say, man, this is even better than the first book. The first book was great, but this one was even better. Okay, okay it should be that way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes we have folk who, who who are waiting to be the greatest in the world right. before they'll even, you know, put anything out. Don't, don't do that to yourself. Do the best work that you can do right now, knowing that the more you do anything, you're going to get better at it. Beautiful. Um, I, I know with the Wheel of Time, I, I remember reading um, the, the big series by Robert Jordan. He sold, you know, tens of millions of copies. But I know that once I, I had read book 10 or 11 or something like that, and I went back and, and read book one again, I thought, wow, he got so much better okay. in, by the time he's at book eight and nine and 10 than he was at book one. Wow. And that freed me up by by you know, allowing me to understand that, I mean, I believe book one is really great, but I think book two is even better and that's okay. okay. You know, we, we can't sit around and wait uh, for that magic moment where we think we're the, finally the greatest writer in the universe. Uh, you got to write where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some of the things that I would, I would say to folk, but I think the community piece is vitally important mm-hmm. because it can, it, it, it's so important because it can help you, it can help you navigate all those other obstacles and mm-hmm. answer a bunch of those questions. Because if you're doing this as an indie artist, there's going to be a million questions you have to get answered. Right. For example, who, who should I, who should I publish the book through? Okay. Should I go with create space? Should I go with first edition design publishing? Should I go with Ingram spark? Should I go with di- uh, draft to digital? Now, there are folks who have had all those experiences who can answer those questions for you. So you don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. And that's why I think the community piece is so, so vitally important. Beautiful. Uh, Mr. Gerald Coleman, where can we find you on social media? Man, you can find me on my website, Gerald L Coleman dot CO. You can find me on Facebook at the three gifts. You can find me on Twitter at Iconoclast, and that's spelled I-C-O-N-I-C-L-A-S-T. Brother, you dropped a lot of knowledge and experience on us, man, and it's been a pleasure to have you on the program. Man, it's been my pleasure. You took me back down through memory lane, brother, <laughs> and I appreciate that. And uh, it, it was, it's been a pleasure, man, sharing this experience with you. And uh, and I look forward to, to not only sharing this with other folks, but continuing to share uh, what you're doing, because I think what you're doing is important, speaking to uh, black artists 
and giving folk uh, an opportunity to to um, find those people because a lot of times you have folks who are saying where are all the black writers as if right. we don't exist you know where are all the black filmmakers where are all the black poets well we're out here uh, but sometimes we need a little help with exposure and I think what you're doing is so vitally important and Fantastic. I appreciate it and I appreciate you and I appreciate this opportunity to talk with you tonight. Your family, I hope y'all enjoy that interview as much as I enjoy bringing it to you. This is Jonathan Soul speaking with you now. Of course, you can go to jonathansoul.com for more episodes. You can uh, subscribe there. You can also subscribe on uh, SoundCloud and iTunes. Follow me on Twitter, J-O-H-N-A-T-H-A-N-S-O-U-L, on Instagram. And, of course, if you go to my YouTube channel, you'll see where I do videos uh, reviewing the comics. Uh, the thing about comics is it's not just for collectors or, or enthusiasts of the art form like myself. It's about getting your kids to read again. You know, C. Tick Run is boring as hell, but when they see Bangs at Pow and they're black characters, that's a whole world of difference. Uh, also, family, you can support the channel by going to Amazon or, or my site and picking up my novel, my sci-fi novel, Malcolm Mars. I love you guys. Hope all your dreams come true. See you next Sunday here on Jonathan Soul. Peace. <laughs>